The Christian faith has brought comfort and hope to millions of people. Actually, even billions of people, we could say. There's no question that the Christian faith is very attractive. Just think about it. It speaks about a God who loves us. A God who is love, who wants the best for us. It tells us that we're not alone in the universe, that we're not some products of some accident that just came out and, you know, we came here over millions of years of some thoughtless process. It tells us that there's purpose and meaning in life. It tells us that although humans have rebelled against God, that there is a separation between God and humanity, there is a plan. And that plan involves Jesus Christ, who came to earth, who lived his life here, who died, who was resurrected, and continues to help those of us who ask him to in our time of need. And what's more, it tells us that death is not the end. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. But rather, death is called asleep. Jesus called death asleep. And so there will come a time when Jesus will return and those of us who believe in him will have eternal life. We will not perish, but we will have eternal life. <clears throat> Now, isn't that a pretty exciting message? Because you look at what the various alternatives out there in terms of philosophies or religions, and in terms of attractiveness, I would argue there there is nothing that comes close to the attractiveness of the Christian message. So then it seems like a strange title here, How to Destroy the Christian Faith. You see, the Christian faith is also unique because it is based on actual historical events see it's not some religion of some sort of philosophy or some sort of ideas that a human or man-made that somebody has come up with rather it is a religion that is based on the historical person of Jesus Christ it is based on the life the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ but you know what the point is the fact that it is a historical religion also means that it is potentially falsifiable Now that's very interesting because just imagine, what if there was no person called Jesus Christ who ever lived? What if there was maybe someone at Jesus Christ who lived but he wasn't resurrected? Now that's an interesting point because if that could be demonstrated, then that's a real challenge to the Christian faith. So all these attractive things that we've been talking about, well, hey, they don't really mean a lot unless it's some sort of psychological, sociological phenomenon because it doesn't have basis in reality if indeed these things aren't true. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul also had this very clearly in mind because he said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And if that wasn't clear enough, further on in the same chapter, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. I mean, I don't know, can he say it much more clearly than that? He's basically saying, if Jesus was not resurrected from the dead, from the dead The game's over. You're wasting your time. What are you doing in church? What are we doing here if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? 
Let's have a look at what the New Testament tells us about the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, just to run through it very briefly, it tells us that Jesus was put to death by crucifixion on a Friday afternoon. A Roman soldier pierced his side with a spear. Blood and water came out. The body was wrapped in clean linen cloth. The body was placed in a solid rock tomb. So as you can see here, you've got Bible references there. This is basically a summary of what the various Gospels, because there are four biographies of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and they give us an account of the last scenes in terms of Jesus' life and then also his resurrection. And it continues, a large stone was placed across the entrance to the tomb. An official seal was affixed to the stone. A Roman guard was placed in front of the tomb. Early Sunday morning, there was a great earthquake and an angel rolled back the stone from the door of the tomb. The guard shook for fear and became like dead men. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were the first witnesses of the resurrection and the, typo, sorry, the, the angel told them to tell the disciples that Jesus was alive and would meet them in Galilee. The soldiers were bribed to say the disciples stole the body while they slept and the soldiers were promised protection if this came to the attention of the governor. So there you have it in very quick summary what the New Testament tells us about the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But you know what? It doesn't stop there because the New Testament tells us more. It actually tells us there were a bunch of people who saw Jesus alive after he was resurrected. <clears throat> and so on the Sunday morning, it tells us there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Then there was Cleopas and his friend. Sunday afternoon, Simon Peter, and then the ten apostles without Thomas. Now this is an interesting one. You remember the story of doubting Thomas? Because he was the one. What did he say? He said that he didn't believe the other disciples. See, this is an interesting point. The disciples weren't even expecting resurrection. They just didn't get it. You think they would have after three and a half years with Jesus. But for some reason, they didn't quite understand. They didn't get it. So Thomas says he's not going to believe until he what, sees Jesus and touches his side. And guess what? The next week, the 11 apostles with Thomas, they meet up. And what does Thomas do? He acknowledges that it is Jesus and his Lord and God. Now, other people later, the seven by the lake of Tiberias, more than 500 believers. And we'll come back to the 500 believers a little bit later. But that's huge. Jesus appears to more than 500 people at the one time. 11 apostles at the ascension into heaven and then finally in vision he appears to Saul, Paul and Paul's an interesting case example because he is someone who was persecuting the Christians. He was out of his way trying to even put them to death and you know what? He had a transformative experience and he became one of if not the greatest evangelist in the early Christian church. There's something profound which is happening there. So here we have it. This is a summary of what the New Testament is telling us about the death, the resurrection, and also the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. And the early Christian church very clearly preached the resurrection. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Another one, Acts 17. And here, this is just a selection of two. There are many... Um, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So I think what's very clear is that, you know, I'm building case on case, but the resurrection is pretty important, don't you think, to the Christian faith? 
If Jesus was not raised, as Paul said, the faith, our faith is futile, it's a waste of time. So the resurrection is something that we actually, I think, need to delve in a little bit more deeply. But here we've got another question. Can we take the resurrection story seriously? See, critics have long understood that if they could discredit the resurrection, then they've destroyed Christianity. Now, there was a university student by the name of Joel. Now, he had started out, I mean, as most university students, he wanted to go and study, he also wanted to accomplish other goals in life. But um, he was on university campus, enjoying himself. And there was a group of people that he noticed were a little bit different somehow. And they seemed to have some sort of purpose, meaning in life, and some sort of joy there that he was struggling with. He kind of didn't really have this. And so, he, look, one, one day he got talking with one of the um, young women in that group and, and basically said, look, what is it about you guys that's different? And so she answered back to him and said, look, Jesus Christ. And he said, what? Jesus Christ? You've got to be kidding. Don't give me any of that religion garbage. And she said, well, hang on a minute, I, I didn't say religion. <laughs> I said Jesus Christ. And um, so, and she challenged him. He said, look, you go and investigate the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and then you can see for yourself what we're talking about. Well, he thought this was nonsense because in his mind, if, <laughs> this is the way he's brought up, he thought that if a Christian had even a single brain cell, <laughs> you guessed it, it would die of loneliness. He didn't really rate, the, rate Christians very highly. He just thought these guys weren't actually all that smart, all that intelligent, because obviously they believed in nonsense. But never mind, he kept going on, and still there was something about this group that troubled him, and so he decided, well, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to disprove this Christianity business once and for all. And so he cottoned onto the idea that if he can disprove the resurrection, well, then he doesn't have to worry about these guys anymore. Well, he did, he did um, as he puts it in his words, over 700 hours of research on this topic. And, and you know what happened? <laughs> well, you guessed it, he became a Christian. Amen. And people asked him, well, what is it? You were so against it. So what changed? I mean, how is it that you became a Christian? He said, well, look, as he investigated, as I investigated the evidence for the erection, more and more I could come to no other conclusion but that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And if that's the case, that changes everything. And so it made sense that I must become a Christian. Another man by the name of... Oh, by the way, that man's name is Josh McDowell. You may have heard of him. He wrote a book, very um, um, widely distributed, uh, called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Also another one, More Than a Carpenter. I heard him speak at Macquarie University some many years ago. Um, he packed out a 500-seat auditorium and you could have heard a pin drop the entire time as he gave his story of how he investigated the resurrection and came to faith. Now, there's another man by the name of Frank Morrison. He was a journalist. Similarly, he set out to disprove Christianity. He wanted to write a book. And he did write a book. And the first chapter has a, has a funny name. Um, it's, it says, uh, The Book That Refused to Be Written. And the reason is because as he investigated the evidence more and more, he ended up writing a book, but it was a different book to what he set out. Why? Because he became a believer as a result of looking at the evidence. And so there are other examples we, we, we could cite here, um, Lee Strobel and others, but <clears throat> there are critics who have set out to disprove the resurrection on historical grounds and ended up coming to faith because of the very history that they were using to try to disprove Christianity. At this stage, there's, there's a couple of points that need to be made, though. So someone might ask, well, hang on, but 
Don't we get all the story of the resurrection just from the New Testament? And, you know, that's not very reliable history, is it? And, you know, it's, you know, we can't take it seriously, surely. Well, that's an interesting comment. And that's true. A lot of what we know is from the New Testament, from, from the biographies and, and, of Jesus and the book of Acts. So how do we deal with that? Well, first of all, if we're going to say that something's unreliable, we need to have some, some, some criteria for how we check if something is reliable or not. That makes sense, doesn't it? it it's easy to be dismissive and say, ha, huh, that's not reliable. Huh, and then we don't have to think about it. You know, it's quite disparaging. It's maybe, you know, some sort of innuendo. No, no, it's not cool to basically look at that. No, 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 let's, let's all laugh together and say, no, we're not going to look at it. But hang on a minute. What are the criteria used to reject it by saying it's not reliable? And I would suggest that we need to apply the same criteria we would apply to any piece of ancient literature. So the point is, if you've got a piece of ancient literature, well, you want to know uh, what does it claim to be? You know, is it a book of fiction or mythology or does it claim to be telling the truth about a historical event? You know, what it claims to be means that you treat it in a different way. You test what claims to be telling objective truth. Um, then you, you have a look at what about the, the manuscripts that we have? You know, how many manuscripts do we have? You know, is it like one, two or three? Which is, you know, believe it or not, that's what we have with a lot of ancient history and we take that as no problem at all. Well, with the New Testament, we've got about 25,000 either um, complete or, or in most cases fragments from the New Testament. That's more than any other piece of ancient literature by a long shot. What about the time? Okay, so if you've got a period of time between when it's written and when you have your earliest copy, obviously the smaller that time frame, the better it is. Well, it surprises people to know that in a lot of ancient history, there's more than a thousand years difference between when the books were written and when our earliest copies are. That's a long period of time. Well, in the New Testament, we've actually got the entire New Testament in under 250 years. And in fact, we've got fragments from the early 2nd century from the Gospel of John, just uh, 20 or 30 years possibly from the time it was written. By the standards of literature, <laughs> literary analysis and, and documents, it is something which is an amazingly short period of time. The other thing, look, is it eyewitness testimony? Is this someone who heard something from someone else? Well, this is real eyewitness testimony. The New Testament claims to be eyewitness testimony. What about archaeology? What about other corroborative history? When we look at all this criteria, what we find is that the New Testament is more reliable than any other piece of ancient literature. Well, just let that sink in. I mean, hang on. The ancient literature, I mean, that's a vast field. That's a big claim. What is it? That when we look at the New Testament as a document, it is more reliable than any other piece of ancient literature. In fact, there's one professor put it this way. He said, look, if we are to reject the New Testament as being unreliable, then we've pretty much got to destroy the vast body of ancient literature that we have out there. So the New Testament... So let's not have anyone say, look, the New Testament, it's just unreliable, we can dismiss it. If we look at the evidence, it is extremely reliable. Well, at this stage, then we bump into another problem, and that has to do with worldview. See, the Bible, what's it do? New Testament talks a lot about Jesus, it talks about miracles. Now, what happens when you talk about miracles in our enlightened uh, scientific world? Well, what is it? The assumption is a miracle can't happen. So the point is, that if you've got a worldview that, where, that says God does not exist and everything is explained by natural, physical means, well, you don't really have a philosophical position where you can fit a miracle like a resurrection. It just doesn't fit. So what do you do with that? 
The problem is that if you've adopted that as your starting principle, it doesn't matter how much evidence there is, you're not going to buy the conclusion that a miracle ever happened. So you're going to come up with every other possible explanation that you can to try to avoid coming to the conclusion that this miracle actually happened. Now, this is, I mean, this is not just with this issue of the resurrection. This is anything to do with miracles. This is really anything to do with the supernatural, with God. There is a starting position that says there is no God and therefore, thereby everything else has to be interpreted within that paradigm. Or you say there is a God and that opens up a whole bunch of other possibilities. It's actually a pretty foundational issue. So the question is, how do we deal then with the resurrection from a paradigm? Well, look, if someone's taking the view that miracles aren't possible, well, I guess it's difficult. However, there's a point I need to make. Because some people say, well, can you prove it scientifically? Well, you know what? It's not relevant. It's not a repeatable experiment that you can do in a test tube or in a laboratory. See, the way we determine something historical, we use a legal concept of evidence. So we get witnesses, we look at documents, we look at different um, circumstantial evidence, etc. And then, just as you would do in a court of law, you basically present the evidence and you come up with a verdict. And sometimes the evidence is so overwhelming that the conclusion is very clear. So the appropriate way to look at this is to look at it through a legal process of evidence... Scientific isn't relevant here. And I think that's an important distinction. So where does that leave us? So if someone, let's say, looks at the New Testament and is happy to accept it, let's say they say, we can accept the historical part of it as being something, and and fair enough, look, I think you've got to do that if you're fair with the reliability of the, the things that we spoke about. But let's say for a moment we park the miraculous so, you know, all the miracles, the resurrection. Let's say for a moment we just, we don't say we don't believe it, but we don't say we do believe it. We say let's put it here to the side and let's just deal with the historical aspects that we've actually concluded are very reliable. Can we come to a conclusion that the resurrection actually happened based on that? Well, this is where it gets very interesting because there are some historical facts that are accepted by the vast majority of scholars, whether they are believers or not believers. And I think just by looking at those historical facts, it leads us to a very interesting conclusion. And so there are four historical facts that are acknowledged by most scholars of whatever persuasion. The first of those is that Jesus was a real person of history and he died by crucifixion. Well, in terms of the real person of history, you occasionally get someone who says, well, look, no, he wasn't, but um, they haven't looked at the evidence. Besides the New Testament, which, of course, is very reliable, there are more than 17 sources outside of the New Testament that actually speak about Jesus Christ. I mean, by ancient historical standards, that's just huge. It's overwhelming. So there's no question Jesus was a real person of history. Now, the dying by crucifixion is interesting because some people dispute that. So Tacitus, who was considered to be the greatest historian in the Roman Empire, says, Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. Now, Josephus goes even further and says, when Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing amongst us, had him condemned to be crucified. So there we have two sources that are not Christian sources that clearly talk about Jesus Christ as being a real person and also that he died by crucifixion. 
So I don't think you're really going to have too much argument on that point, except some people do. I remember in the 1990s there was um, a scholar from Sydney University by the name of Barbara Thiering who came up with this idea, and others have, have similar variations. They said, well, Jesus didn't really die, he just swooned. He just basically, it seemed like he died, but he actually survived and, um, you know, the reason that, 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 that he was seen afterwards was because, um, well, you know, he never died. Well, there, there, but there's a problem there. And that is that Jesus, as the records say, was beaten to um, within an inch of dying anyway before that. He was too weak to even carry his own cross. Um, he didn't last there for very long on the cross. The Roman soldier didn't break his legs because he was already dead. They put a spear in his side and there was water and blood came out. To say that he didn't really die is to go against all the different scientific facts we can put together. And what do we know about, you know, the way that he was beaten? And, you know, can you imagine what we know with modern science, um, medicine, with, with the infection, the septicemia that would set in, I think, fairly quickly over, over the next few days if, if someone stayed alive? Funny thing is that there's no precedent in history of anybody surviving crucifixion. Josephus records one occasion where there were two people who had been nailed to a cross, were given a last-minute pardon, and they were taken down. You know what happened? They died, and that's not surprising. The point is there is no record of anybody surviving crucifixion, so it's some sort of special pleading for, to suggest that this is possible. So that's the first um, point. I think it's very solid. Second one is the writers of the New Testament believe that Jesus rose from the dead and they acted on that belief. Remember the story of the disciples? What happened after Jesus died? They pretty much ran away. They were cowards. So what do they do? Then the story is somehow they then wrote gospels saying that he rose from the dead they some there's no question they believed it there's no question at all and then what then their lives are transformed from being cowards they went and preached all around the world this idea that Jesus had been raised from the dead and then what they acted on they're willing to die for that belief I mean Thomas himself even doubted it and then he believed when he saw Jesus so whatever critic there may be, they've got to believe that the New Testament writers actually believed and, and acted on that belief. See, at this stage, some people say, well, hang on, maybe they just all got together and they had a conspiracy. Maybe they just made up the idea that Jesus rose from the dead and then they decided to preach it. Well, hang on, for what motivation? They got persecuted and most of them died for their belief. Now, would you be willing to die for something that you knew that was false, for, 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 for no obvious gain or no advantage? They also didn't really understand the idea of resurrection. They were cowards. But the thing is, their lives were transformed, and somehow, out of this, they preached around the world, and they had teachings which were the highest of ethical standards. So, what, you're going to maintain that these guys got together, they made up a story, and at the same time, they lived highly moral, ethical lives, and taught others to do the same. It just doesn't make sense. So the conspiracies doesn't add up. What about, some people say, well, maybe they hallucinated the whole thing. Well, it's interesting. Well, but did you see how many people Jesus appeared to? Many different people, many different times, 500 people at one time. Now, guess what? If you have hallucinations, very individual thing. I mean, if we, um, you know, if everyone here had some magic mushrooms and everyone had a hallucination, well, guess what? Do you think everyone's going to hallucinate the same thing? Hardly. 
It's all going to be very individual. So to argue that all these people had all these hallucinations and it was the same thing about a risen, an encounter with a risen saviour just doesn't add up. So the hallucination theory doesn't work either. Well, so, and neither of those theories actually explain the third fact, and that is that the tomb was empty. Nobody denies that the tomb was empty. The Jewish authorities admitted that the tomb was empty. The Roman authorities didn't actually argue that point. The Christians argued it was empty. No, look, the tomb was empty. The question is, why was it empty? How was it empty? See, the Gospels, as recorded, gave a supernatural version of events where Jesus rose from the dead. The official story, as we read in the Gospel of, of Matthew, was that the disciples came and stole the body. And this is something that was actually propagated for many years afterwards by Jewish authorities. In fact, Justin Martin, Martyr, in um, his writings, um, Dialogues with Trifo, in the mid-2nd century, outlines this very point, that this is the counter-argument that was used against the resurrection, is that the disciples came and stole the body. Well, but we've got some issues there. How could the disciples, even if they wanted to, how could the disciples steal the body? Well, first of all, as we saw, they were cowards, they ran away. They didn't actually understand resurrection. Why would they suddenly then take on the might of the Roman Empire standing in front of a tomb? First of all, they would have had to have broken the seal which was on the tomb. Now, if you broke a seal without authority, it was punishable by death. Then you had to overpower a guard. Now, Romans weren't known for being light on when it came to guarding duties. They were pretty fierce and there was a pretty good reason for that. You didn't go to sleep at the post because if you did it was punishable by death. And if someone went to sleep and it wasn't clear who, there were lots drawn because someone had to die. I mean these guys were tough and they were ruthless. Now a typical guard would have been four people. Now we know that in Matthew it's recorded that the authorities, Jewish authorities went and asked for the guard to be strengthened which means that it was almost certainly doubled so eight Roman soldiers in front of a tomb. Now, someone's going to convince that the disciples being cowards wanted to come in, take them on, that somehow gone to sleep and they, that they, got, and, and they took the body. Well, then we've got the next problem. And that is that the stone in front of the tomb weighed about two tonne in weight. And guess what? Do you reckon if you moved one of those, it might make some noise? And maybe wake up one of the eight Roman soldiers, or all eight in this case, that could have possibly gone to sleep. And then when when they got to the tomb, what John records is that the grave clothes, because when Jesus died, he was put up in these uh, grave clothes, and John records that that there were various um, gums and spices that were on Jesus. And um, these grave clothes were there, folded. Well, guess what? If the disciples got there, they would have grabbed the body and ran out. They wouldn't be unwrapping it all with all these gums and spices and leaving the grave clothes there. Next point is that women are recorded as the first witnesses of the resurrection. Now, if you... Now, I've got to get from our perspective, it sounds very sexist, but in Jewish society in in first century Palestine, women were not valid witnesses in a court of law. So if you're trying to fabricate a story about a resurrection, you are not going to have witnesses... You're not going to have women as the first witnesses of the resurrection. Then we've got the next problem, and that is, what do the disciples do after the resurrection? They preach the resurrection. Now, where do they do that? And a few weeks later, they don't do it somewhere in Athens or Rome where no one's heard of this stuff. They preach it right there in Jerusalem. What do they do? They preach Jesus risen, they preach the empty tomb, and what happens? There are thousands of people who believe and become Christians. Well, how's that possible if you don't have an empty tomb? All the authorities have to do is, is say, well, hey guys, you got it wrong. You've got the wrong tomb. Or here it is, here's the body. They just expose it. 
the tomb was empty. Otherwise, there's no way there could have been thousands of people who became Christians. And see, this is an interesting passage here in First, first, uh, sorry, first Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, this is a listing of some of the people who, who Jesus appeared to. Now, isn't this interesting? Now, does this give some explanation for why there are suddenly thousands of people who believe? Well, guess what? If you've got hundreds of people who have seen Jesus, then when you preach and people say, yeah, I've heard this, I've got this friend, I've got this neighbour, yeah, they saw this. Well, guess what? The penny's going to drop and you say, hey, there's something remarkable going here. You get the sermon in the context that's preached there in Acts chapter 2 and then is it any surprise that people say, hey, what, 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 what must we do? And so thousands of people are converted as a result of that. Amen. Then we've got the fourth historical fact and that is that Christianity grew rapidly despite persecution and being countercultural. It wasn't easy being a Christian in the first few centuries. Why? Because it was anti the empire, it was anti what the, the Jewish authorities and, 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 and the believers were, were saying. It was tough and they were persecuted. So you didn't become a Christian lightly because it was a trendy thing to do, because it actually wasn't. You did it because you believed that Jesus rose from the dead. But then countercultural. This is it. The idea of resurrection was something which was foreign to the cultures of the day. You remember that when Paul preached in Athens... What was the response? The philosophers, they sneered when he started talking about the resurrection because he had no idea. They had no idea that resurrection was something that was conceivably possible. And so for the Christians to be preaching that there's somebody who rose from the dead and we should worship that person, it wasn't fertile soil in the culture of the time. But there's also something which makes it even more difficult. Now, on what did Jesus die? It's a cross. What do we know about the cross? The cross was reserved as punishment for the worst of the worst. It was a shame to die on a cross. To then preach that somebody should worship somebody who had died on a cross was the most ridiculous idea. But that's what the Christians were doing. Not only persecuted, not only preaching something that is a foreign concept, the resurrection, but preaching that you worship somebody who died on a cross. Preposterous. But you know what? Despite all of that, the church grew and grew rapidly. Now, as a historian, someone needs to ask, well, how can that happen? You see, at the cross, it looked like it was dead. It was over. It was a failure. You know, Jesus had been for three and a half years. Yes, he'd done some marvellous good works, but he was dead. He was a revolutionary whose time had come, but he was killed by the Romans. He was on a cross. You know, if you're there looking at that stage, you think, hey, this, this is over. Look, let's move on. What's the next game? So you look at that historically, 
How can it be that something that looked like it was dead, it was over, there was no hope for it, all of a sudden becomes the most dominant force and the most dominant religion over the next few hundred years? It grew rapidly. If Jesus had died and simply stayed in the tomb, there is no possible explanation of how that could be the case. I would argue that the only explanation when you look at these four historical facts, they're not controversial facts, when you look at these four historical facts, the only conclusion that is logical is that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. It's very interesting that there's um, Neil Foster. He presented an academic paper um, a number of years ago. Um, he's actually, at that stage, he was senior lecturer um, at the University of uh, Newcastle Law School, so um, <laughs> not too far from here. And um, he's now an associate professor at that law school. And he looked at the topic, Jesus dead or alive? A lawyer looks at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And so in his 26-page academic paper, he actually, having considered all the various evidence, and interestingly, he applied the rules of evidence as per the statutes of the laws of New South Wales. So what would be acceptable as evidence in a New South Wales law court, that's how he filtered the evidence. And his conclusion was this, but in the end, they, that is the New Testament writers, present a compelling case for the fact that the man Jesus rose from the dead. So if we look at the history without biases that say that God doesn't exist or that miracles can't happen, if we just look at the evidence and let it speak for itself, we come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. Now, it's interesting, there's a man by the name of Lord Darling, um, about a century ago, and he was the former Lord Chief Justice of England, so the last um, lawmaker, he was actually an expert in evidence. What was good evidence? What was bad evidence in a court of law? And he studied the resurrection, and this is his conclusion. He said, the crux of the problem of whether Jesus was or was not, what he proclaimed himself to be, must surely depend on the truth or otherwise of the resurrection. On that greatest point, we are not merely asked to have faith. In its favour as a living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. So I think as we look at the question of the resurrection, there's no question that we can establish that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. And so the question then, the final one, does the resurrection of Jesus really matter? It's a good question, and I think Scripture itself answers it very clearly. We, we've seen the words of the Apostle Paul, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So is the resurrection important? No, absolutely it's important, it's central, it's critical to the Christian faith. But there's more. Romans 10.9, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The resurrection is involved, our belief is involved with our salvation. And so what do we do? So we confess Jesus. So if we accept that Jesus is Lord of our life and believe that he raised from the dead, we can be confident. The Bible tells us, what is it? It tells us that you will be saved. I mean, that's pretty exciting news. So I'll ask the question, who here believes that Jesus is Lord and in their heart is saying that God raised him from the dead? Is anyone here? Yeah, 
That's it. I, I, I would hope that all, all, all hands go up. This is something that is profound. But then, look at this one, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15, 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, there's no point having a dead saviour. It doesn't work. What we have is a saviour who rose from the dead and he's not there doing nothing. What's it say? He's there. He's there to help us in our time of need. Now, look, I don't know about you guys, but look, I, <laughs> I meet a lot of people, pretty much everyone I see in myself, there's always lots of troubles. There's always things in life. I think all of us need help in life. And you know what? We've got the person here who conquered death on our behalf and he's in heaven and we can approach him and we're told to approach God's throne of grace with confidence. With confidence. It's not as if we have to tiptoe timidly and wonder if God's going to reject us. The point is, it's saying we have a high priest in heaven and we should approach the throne with confidence. Let me see a show of hands. Who would like to approach the throne of God with confidence? Yes, Yes, absolutely. And we're exhorted to do that. This is exciting stuff. We've got a message, see, that we, we, we share with the world. This is thrilling stuff. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. This is Jesus foreshadowing the fact that it is because of what he has done that we can look forward to resurrection ourselves. And this is made even clearer in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. See, science is good for a lot of things. It's absolutely useless for telling us what happens when we die unless you take a worldview that says God doesn't exist, in which case you say, well, when you die, you die. That's the end. There is nothing else. Jesus Christ tells us something very different. And that is because he rose from the dead, we too can have confidence that we will rise from the dead. All of us have loved ones and most of us have experienced the death of our loved ones. And it's a tragedy because death is not normal in God's universe. And it's a tragedy how it's here. here. But the point is that God has a plan for the sin problem. He has a plan for the death problem. And he's promising that there will be eternal life. There'll be a resurrection followed by eternal life for all those who believe in him. This is powerful. This is life-changing. This is a message that we can preach with confidence around the world. See, when it comes to the resurrection, what it tells us is that there is a God who loves us and has a plan to reconcile us with him. We have a God who because of the resurrection we can have confidence that we can have salvation. Because of the resurrection we can actually know that there is a mediator in heaven, that there is a high priest who we can approach with confidence any time we want or any time we need. And finally, because of the resurrection, we know that death is not the end, 
that Jesus has conquered death, and as a result of that, we can have absolute confidence, guaranteed, that there is an eternity for those who love God. Who here would like to accept God's gift and is looking forward to that eternity with him? Can I have you stand? That's wonderful. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, first of all, for Jesus Christ. And we thank you for everything that he has done for us, the fact that he came to earth, that he died for our sins, and the fact that he was resurrected. And because of that, we can have enormous confidence. We ask for your blessing on each person here. Our pastor, Pastor David, the leadership team here, all the members here, all the families who are also associated with this church and all our loved ones as well. Please help us to come to an ever deeper knowledge of you and may we be transformed by your love so that we can live in deeper connection with you but also we can share our experience with many people that we come in contact with. I ask for the blessing on the church here. May it be a powerful beacon of your love to the community around. And please bless each individual with our challenges, trials that we have, and that we know that we can come to you always. Please give us confidence, please give us strength, please give us encouragement. And as we look forward to that day when Jesus will come again and we can spend eternity with you, We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.